I'm El Kamihira, and thank you for listening to episode 14 of Subject to Power. In most of our world, patriarchal rule is so total that we can't imagine anything different. Every institution we have, every system we live within, legal, economic, political, our marriages, our families, is based in patriarchal rule. Rebellious movements continue to disrupt it, but the structure of patriarchy remains stable. So much so that it seems inevitable and permanent. It's easy to think that there was never anything different and that there can never be anything different. My guest today, Miriam Robbins Dexter, is a hugely accomplished research scholar in ancient Indo-European languages, archaeology, and mythology. And Miriam was part of a revolutionary, decades-long research effort that literally unearthed evidence of a time before patriarchy. In this episode, I talk with Miriam about how she and famed archaeologist Maria Gimbutas and many others formed the contested but newly vindicated theories about how patriarchy, as we know it today, came into existence. In her extraordinary career, Miriam's focus has been to uncover and understand the female aspects of these ancient cultures, their stories, their values, their heroes, and the goddesses they worshipped. If you can do a brief introduction of your areas of expertise and then talk about, you know, your journey into that. Very happy to. I did a PhD in Indo-European studies, and that is a program where you study a lot of ancient languages, like Sanskrit, Greek, Latin, and so forth. And you translate texts and study the, the myths of these cultures. And when I was in the program, there was a wonderful archaeologist who was part of the program, Maria Gabudas, and she taught us the archaeology of who the, the Proto-Indo-Europeans were. And she had a theory about where they came from, which I can talk about later, which was later proved. So I translate texts, ancient texts. I'm very interested in who these people were. I translate mostly texts about ancient female figures because nobody else was. <laughs> in Indo-European studies, nobody else was interested in that. And I was very interested. So I just found as the years went on, I became more interested instead of less. So I do mostly Indo-European and Near Eastern languages. And quite a few. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can you kind of list the languages that you know, just to get an idea of the kind of spread that you know? Yes, I can, because I can't remember all of them. I listed them in a file. So I've done, it looks like I've done 37 with really varying amounts of ability from really good ability, like I have a bachelor's degree in Latin and Greek, to not so great ability. I, I once translated an Egyptian text, and it took me a month to translate three lines. So I want you to know there's great divergence here. <laughs> so Ugaritic, Egyptian, Hebrew, Sumerian, Phoenician, Lithuanian, Latvian, Sanskrit, Avestan, Old Iranian, some Russian, although it's poor. Old Irish, Medieval Welsh, Old High German, Old Icelandic, Modern German, Latin, Greek, Linear B, Hittite, and then some modern languages, Italian, French, Romanian. And I have some ability with other modern languages. I can't do any African languages, any ancient Latin American languages, and so I sort of stick where I can work with the translations because my translations are very literal because I really want to know what the ancient people were thinking rather than be poetic and add my own modern thinking to it. I'm just kind of in awe of this language skill that you have, the mastery of knowing so many, so many languages that can give you such a powerful window into past cultures. I just think it's amazing. 
people have different talents. Languages and grammar come relatively easy to me. And I think language is a talent rather than, oh, the most wonderful brain in the whole world, right? Like, I'm not an artist. I can't work with my hands. I don't have that talent. So thank you for that. There's probably one little part of my brain that's more developed than others. <laughs> the whole deciphering of and decoding, you know, these ancient languages, it's like an ancient puzzle almost. It is, and that's why I enjoy it so much. I am not a very passive person, so I don't like just reading, only reading about things. I like using my brain and, and working out the puzzles. I had been a Latin and Greek major going into grad school, and after one semester, I realized that we were doing the text, but lots and lots of critiques, and I was so bored, I thought I'd have a nervous breakdown, and I sort of did. So when I got myself together again, I went to the chair, and I told the chair what was bothering me about classics, and he said, we'll give you all the languages you want. Because <laughs> I said, I just want to study the languages. I don't want to read what other people thought about the text. And so I got to do two new languages every year. So when you were in your studies, it coincided with the second wave feminism that was in full bloom at that point. Can you tell me a little bit more about how those two things went together for you? I was in the middle of my dissertation when the second wave of feminism began, which was really mid-70s, because the mid-60s was the South and what was happening to Black people, mostly in the South, but everywhere, really. I was not so much in sync with the women's movement, and it wasn't until somewhere around 1980-81, I proposed a course at California State University, Northridge. The lovely woman who was chair of women's studies said, well, you know, we can't offer that course, but if you'd like to teach a course in beginning women's studies, you can. And I thought, okay. So I made a women's studies course and boy, was my consciousness raised. <laughs> That's all I can say. I became from that point on an ardent feminist. I mean, I had my students read articles and report on them, and one of them was about a judge who said that the reason a toddler was raped by a relative was that she was very seductive. And I thought, okay, this is it. <laughs> I can't handle this. So most of what I write has a, a distinctly feminist slant which I'd love to talk more about. So you pointed me in the direction of an article called Why Women Need the Goddess. God, yes. Christ. Carol P. Christ. Uh -huh. Carol P. Christ. And I just want to talk a little bit about the themes that she raises, which is, and I don't think about this often because I'm not particularly religious, but we live in a time of male religion. Yes. And... There's a line in, in this article that says, the emergence of the symbol of goddess among women have significant political and psychological ramification for the feminist movement. want to know if you can speak to that. Why is it important to know about and study goddess cultures? I would love to speak about this article because it's one of the favorites I've ever read. So Carol starts out saying that symbols are important because they create deep-seated attitudes and feelings. And she says, religion fulfills deep psychic needs by providing symbols and rituals that enable people to cope with crisis situations. And really, I think she was talking about religion and spirituality, which I think is different. Religion is ligio, tying people to one another again. Re. So religion is about community. And if you're a community, then you tend to believe all the same thing. Spirituality is unique to each person who has a spiritual belief. My beliefs don't have to be like yours, but it's important to me to, for nobody else to tell me how to believe. Okay, so I'll go on with what Carol says in her article that the mind abhors a vacuum. And so 
people are raised with a patriarchal religion, Judaism, Christianity in its different forms, um, Islam, and they all feature a patriarchal warrior deity. So we have these symbols of the male as dominant, man was created in God's image, and woman wasn't. And so the mind has all these symbols and images, which, of course, make women feel less than. Carol says that symbol systems can't just be rejected, they have to be replaced. Because, again, the mind abhors the vacuum. Where there's no replacement, especially in times of crisis, the mind will revert to familiar structures. So patriarchal symbol systems greatly devalue women. You just think of the story of Eve, which is very, very patriarchal look at an old myth, which I think is a Sumerian myth, which I've written about. So they make women feel like they should defer to men. These patriarchal religious systems, symbol systems have to be replaced with woman-centered symbols of the divine feminine. So she talks about the goddess as affirmation of female power, the female body, the female will. You know, women aren't supposed to have will. That's too arrogant of us, right? And women's bonds. And she says, especially with the mother, what an important bond. Mothers, sisters, daughters, and then other relatives, friends. Women need very strong bonds. Goddess symbols affirm the female body in our life cycles that overrides taboos against menstruation, childbirth, and menopause. The wise old woman versus the ugly old woman or witch. Because I'm in most of my professional life is with a rather strong feminist culture, I don't feel that, I mean, almost almost 80, and I don't feel that negative look toward older women. Instead, I feel like every year that goes on, I'm feeling more honored, which is <laughs> absolutely wonderful and miraculous. In goddess religion, women are considered to be created in the, in the image of the divine, who is the goddess. And the goddess can be imminent, that is within, or transcendent, out there for us to pray to, because spirituality can be singular to each person, we can be with the goddess any way we might need her. Now, goddess religion talks about women's power, but this is really power within as opposed to power over others, which is the masculist uh, way of thinking. Rhianne Eisler wrote in The Chalice and the Blade, sort of really echoing um, Maria Gambudis' words, saying that women had power in early prehistory, and it was the power within, power to be who they needed to be. And in this culture, if women, even now, if women want power, we're thought to be arrogant. And anything that, that looks strong in a woman is considered masculine. I was once years ago told by the date of a friend who came to dinner at my house that I had a masculine mind because I translated languages. We've come a long <laughs> way since then. I really do think we've made some strides, maybe not as many as we need to, but well, especially with recent setbacks. But I mean, I just look at graduate programs and there's so many women in them. When I joined my PhD program, I was the only female graduate student in the program, and the professors were mostly male professors and then Maria. I want to circle back to one point you made earlier that the Judeo-Christian religions, the male religions, imbue women with a feeling that there's something wrong with their body, that their bodies are degenerate in some way or female bodily functions just doesn't fit into the worldview. <laughs> and then I think about the idea of, you know, worshiping a goddess or having goddesses to look towards that celebrate those very yes. female body functions and how we look and what our bodies do. And I just feel sad that we don't have that <laughs> current Yes, I do too. And with Roe versus Wade, it's it's going to be take us quite some time to to come back. I think. Yes. 
Agreed. I'm glad you said that because I think the abortion debate is very much that, you know, having men rule over our life cycles and how... Absolutely. My children were born in 1970 and 1972, and I did natural childbirth with both of them. And I remember after my my first child, my son was born, the doctor said, okay, now would you like an injection so that the afterbirth won't cause you pain because the child had been born and it was all about the child. And I said, what for? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there was very little pain with afterbirth. It's not very big, you know, (laughs) Um, but this was typical of male thinking, just not thinking through why I would have wanted to do something so holistic as natural childbirth. It's uh, a male mind trying to take control over a female function. They don't know Absolutely. They don't know. And they don't know what they don't know. (laughs) I haven't had a a male gynecologist for many, many, many years. (laughs) Because I want somebody who understands. (laughs) Likewise. And it wouldn't it wouldn't occur to me now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So you published your book Whence the Goddesses in 1990. Can you tell us about the book itself? And also, I know you got some pushback. The pushback actually came when I was trying to publish it, because it took me, I think, three years to find a publisher. So one publisher said, take out the word patriarchy. You shouldn't use that word. And the chair and one other person didn't like the book. The chair said, well, you're writing about so many different time frames because I go from Rig Vedic Sanskrit, about 1200 BCE, to the first texts in Lithuanian, about 1600 CE. There's a huge change. And I just said, thank you. And then at the beginning of the book, I just wrote that there's a huge time difference. (laughs) I, I spoke to the problem right away. But the myths contained in Lithuanian and Latvian songs are so ancient, passed down orally, that they are very important tools for understanding proto-Indo-European myths, the myths Indo-Europeans would have carried with them on their migrations. Can you describe the book a little bit, what you wanted to do when you wrote it? When I wrote it, I decided I had read what Maria Gimbutas wrote about birds and snakes as iconography in the Neolithic. And I thought, hmm, what if I see how far this can go and trace it through text? And I decided to carefully look through the cultures I had studied and look at avian and serpentine iconography. And I started by talking a little bit about the Neolithic and sort of an introduction to the bird and the snake. And then I talked about the goddesses of 13 cultures and how many of them were associated not just with bird or snake, but with both. And then I talk about Indo-European female figures and the principles of energy. So I was looking at energy and I looked at what is a virgin? What's the importance of virginity to this patriarchal culture? I already had recognized it was very patriarchal. And also, I have to say, because the second wave of feminism had barely started at this time, my male professors weren't in the least bit defensive because there wasn't a time yet when people were being defensive about feminism. So they were really welcoming this. At any rate, I decided that virgins are like a battery that's been charged and hasn't discharged yet. A virgin is ready to give her energy to others, but she hasn't yet, which makes her very alluring, by the way. In the mother state, she is then actively giving her energy to men. And I have some examples of where that proved terrible for the female figures, usually heroines rather than goddesses. And then in the third section, I talked about witches and monsters because it's woman and as crone on the degeneration of ancient goddesses into witches and monsters because it happened everywhere. And this degeneration is very 
upsetting to me. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. When the female figure, the goddess, is actively supporting her culture, like an Athena, who really is very patriarchal, according to the Greek tragedy in Aeschylus, Athena becomes very pro-male, and she also is the guardian of her city of Athens. So she stays. She's fine. She's totally imbued with bird and snake iconography, if you look at the figurines. Then there's Hera, who Homer tells us walks with the steps like a, a gentle bird, but she also has in her sanctuaries have been found terracotta snakes. Artemis is associated with bird and snake. Demeter is associated with bird, but mostly snake. So the goddesses are pretty strong. But then you get into monsters and what the patriarchy conceives of as monster. And my very, very favorite in the whole world is Medusa, who I just love. Iconographically, she's gorgeously depicted on the island of Corfu, Kikira. They have this pediment where she has a couple of snakes at her waist and a couple in her hair and wings on her legs, and she's just beautiful. Medusa is my great favorite. And also, Medusa had to have her head cut off by Perseus, whom Athena got to do this anti-heroic thing, because Athena and Medusa were rivals for beauty. And so, after all, just pit one woman against another. And why really would Athena have put the head into her breastplate? Because it was so powerful, it could ward off the enemy. The Greek look at, at Athena is a very patriarchal look at a, a female figure who's gone through a lot of changes. So, do you look at the bird and snake iconography? Are those like vestiges of what? these goddesses were before? Yeah, that's well put. Yeah, they just continue the iconography of the Neolithic. And I had to think a while to figure out why birds and snakes. And there are a few reasons. I probably can't remember all of them, but snakes slough their skin and regrow it. And birds molt and regrow their feathers. That is as potent a, an image of regeneration as I could think of. And the ancient goddess was birth, death, and regeneration, not just birth and then death and then badness, right? So the bird flies between heaven and earth. The snake mediates earth and the underworld. Both birds and snakes have their ferocious aspects. There are lots of predator birds, eagles and vultures and so forth, owls, who have to kill in order to survive. But there are also birds which represent purity and the breath of life, like the dove. And the dove was shown with Aphrodite and many other ancient female figures. And the snake, even though its toxin can be poison, it can also be used as antitoxin if you know how much to use. And so why do we have the caduceus with the snake wrapped around a pole? Or I saw one that was two snakes and almost a double helix wrapped around a pole, and then at the top were wings. So just the perfect iconography of the bird and snake. So when's the goddess, was that sort of an attempt to chart all these goddess cults, you know, across Europe or and parts of Asia? Yeah, I wanted to trace the functions and attributes, iconography of the main female figures in the religions, which were not as patriarchal at that time as the Abrahamic religions, and just see why they were had these attributes. But I also really was interested in categorization of social and religious categorization into priests, warriors, and the rest of society who were mostly the nurturers, craftspeople, mothers, farmers, that sort of thing. And so I was doing that as well, trying to look at the functions. And what I discovered was that all of the great goddesses were transfunctional. And why were they transfunctional? Because they were great goddesses. They had to be able to do everything, right? 
and very few Proto-Indo-European goddesses. They only brought about four with them. And I, the way I, I worked this out is I did etymologies on these names and found them. You have to find them in, in several geographically distant cultures to, to have it really work and not possibly be a borrowing. So, for example... Thalus Mieta in Lithuanian is the sun maiden. There are sun maidens in Sanskrit, some. I believe that Helen, oddly enough as it sounds, was the sun maiden, changed a bit in Greek because her name means the burning one. S is changed to H, H's, and there's lots of sound changes that you take into consideration. Anyway, the only Proto-Indo-European goddesses I could do that with were a sun maiden, the dawn, and a river goddess, and the earth, of course. And that's it. That's all they carried with them. Every place else they assimilated, these guys migrated and assimilated in all these different places in Europe and assimilated their religion, except changing the great goddesses a bit to make them fit their new religion. I'm glad you brought that up because I do want to talk about, and I think this is still not widely accepted and known, the kind of different migrations of Europe. So can you talk a little bit about Maria Gimbutas' work and the significance of what was established then and have really just been confirmed? Yes. Very early on, probably in the 50s, she started thinking about who the Indo-Europeans were and where they came from. And she noticed the burials first, that these were burials of, of chieftains with some of them very rich grave goods, and some of them with sate burial, meaning the mate of the chieftain would be murdered and buried with him. And she called these burials Kurgan burials because there was a mound over them, and the word for this mound in Russian is Kurgan. So she called them the Kurgan people, and that is synonymous with Proto-Indo-Europeans. So she theorized that Proto-Indo-Europeans left the homeland, and she felt that she had traced the homeland to north of the Black and Caspian Seas, so what would now be Ukraine and points east. And she said the grassy steppes. So they, at some point in their history, beginning about 4500 BCE, in three waves, they migrated out of the homeland and went everywhere. They went to, they stayed in Eastern Europe, so eventually became Russians, uh, the Baltic countries, went all the way to Western Europe, south to Northern Turkey the Hittites, northeast or east to Chinese Turkestan, and they became the Tokarians. And earlier than the Tokarians, you would call them Indo-Iranians or pre-Iranians at any rate were there. So they went everywhere. Some years ago, some friends of mine held a wonderful symposium in northern Italy. And at the end of the symposium, our host, Christina Biaggi, said, okay, I would like to ask what all of you think is the origin of patriarchy. So I really did. I started writing out what I thought were the roots of Indo-European patriarchy. And in my paper, I theorized, I had been reading work of female priestesses, warriors, and others in Ukraine. And I thought, well, this is the Indo-European homeland. How can these women have all these functions when in the assimilated Indo-European cultures all over Europe and some of Asia, they're supposed to stay barefoot and pregnant. They're supposed to be at home. They're supposed to be the private people, not the public people. And then I thought, well, the new cultures must have been more patriarchal. And it isn't that Proto-Indo-Europeans were patriarchal. They were. But at least the women of the cultures had real functions besides just being mothers. And so I thought, well, what would make them more patriarchal? Men. <laughs> so then I theorized that it was only men who had migrated out, expanded out. And that was against most people's opinions at the time. And I not only that, I decided it was probably young men full of testosterone. And because there, there is a huge warrior culture 
in the Indo-European, throughout the Indo-European cultures. And so DNA studies have proved that Maria was correct about the homeland, exactly correct, because the haplogroup for male Indo-Europeans, the Y-DNA is either R1A or R1B. And very frighteningly, we find that the Neolithic male haplogroups are almost completely wiped out. And it's the R1A, R1B that survive. The, the female haplogroups continue on through the pre-Neolithic, just keep going. The male do not. And so you wonder just what these guys did to the Proto-Indo-Europeans. At any rate, DNA studies have shown, yes, it's men who uh, migrated out. They are, have not proved that it was young men, but I continue to think that it was. And they were known to be warriors, a warrior culture, yeah? Yeah, we have we have Proto-Indo-European weapons. And the Neolithic Europeans, who were before the Indo-Europeans came in, didn't have any of the kind. They might have had throwing weapons to kill animals for food, but they didn't have hand-to-hand combat weapons. They didn't have daggers, that sort of thing. And there are no fortified hill sites until the Indo-Europeans start migrating. There are communal burials among the Neolithic Europeans, whereas the Indo-European burials are singular and so often figure a powerful, wealthy male. So what does that indicate that it's communal graves? What does that say about the Neolithic people in Europe before the uh, invasions? That there was not the kind of gender differentiation dominant subordinate that we find in the Indo-European burials and very few grave goods. It was people being honored and, and buried. Not much difference between men and women. Not much difference between men and women, although I remember, interestingly, at Chateauhuyuk, under what would have been built-in benches, were buried some children. And I think that the child burials indicate more care and more concern and probably more grieving. So I'm trying to like picture this in front of me. So you had these peaceful agrarian communities all over Europe and then these these guys it, come in <laughs> these, these men on horseback come in and kill all the men and take all the women i mean is that it really it it really seems like that the women during the migrations it seems like the women are being taken from their own homelands and if you look at, at Greek myth, what is it but how many women Zeus and Apollo and others Poseidon raped? I think it's a rape culture. Still going. <laughs> Still going. We are those are at least my ancestors, but and probably yours too. But I wanted to know how so you charted this invasion or waves of invasions that had taken yes, place right. of a formerly peaceful, egalitarian Europe. How could you tell that those societies were more peaceful? Well, because of the lack of, of defensive fortifications and the lack of weapons. And that doesn't mean that people didn't quarrel. I'm not trying to say it was paradise. I'm saying that these were cultures that weren't trying to get the land of others in order to gain more power and goods. And also, and this is where your reading of and understanding goddesses and what people worshipped, like that tells us a lot, doesn't it, about their values it does. And throughout old Europe, which would be Southeastern Europe, but also much of the rest of, of Europe and the Near East, female figurines outnumbered male figurines about 10 to 1. So that tells you that they were honoring the female. And why not? I mean, you could see that the female gave birth, right? I mean, isn't this the base of every civilization? We need births or we're going to die. You wrote in Whence the Goddess, 
woman per se was probably believed to have a potent, even magical powers of fertility. And her birth-giving powers on a personal scale mirrored the feminine principle of birth and regeneration on a cosmic scale. I thought that was interesting. And since then, I have been publishing on what I called sacred display, which is the power of a woman displaying her genitals. And this goes through every culture that I know of, from Asia to Africa and and throughout Europe, that there are stories of and actual actions of, and it's often an older woman displaying herself and the enemy runs away. They get so scared looking at her that they just run away. In Greek, the act of lifting one's skirt is called anasurma, and it's literally lifting up the clothing, lifting up the skirt. Oh, interesting. <laughs> oh, fascinating. Fascinating yeah, really to is. me. So you can't read anything about the Neolithic goddesses or stories because writing didn't exist, right? Right. The earliest texts in the world that we have been able to translate, where we we actually have been able to figure out the symbol systems, are Egyptian, 3,100 BCE, and Sumerian, the same time frame. That doesn't mean there weren't scripts. In Southeast Europe, one of the most potent symbols of their level of civilization was they had a script. I have been to several conferences on this script and figuring out what the characters are and what some of the symbols might mean. Because, for example, a V is very much used in the script. And by that, I mean it has a lot of diacritics. So a V with a horizontal line above it, a V with what would look like an accent, many, many diacritical forms. So the V became very much used in the old European Danube script. Well, I started tracing the V and went back to the earliest Paleolithic where it's inscribed. There are four Vs inscribed on the cave walls, for example, Chauvet Cave. Before there were really images of females, there were these Vs. And I think it's the V of of the sacred V of the female genitals, the vulva. I love it. Since there weren't writing, how do you find out about these goddesses and myths and stories? How do you discern them? The only thing we can do is look at the material culture because we have never decoded the Danube script. So we look at how many female figurines there are versus male, what these female figurines look like. And in old Europe, many of them, especially from Serbia, have symbols inscribed on them. So the material culture, the graves, who were in the graves, how they were treated compared to other graves... Um, That's the sorts of things we can look at. We can figure out what might have been some proto-myths just by looking cross-culturally at female figures. But we can't just, we don't have text. (laughs) And a friend of mine, Vicki Noble, said that, well, the texts are all patriarchal anyway. And she's right. Every single text we have, well, not everyone, we have Sappho on Lesbos in early Greece, but most of them are written by males for males and are not always positive about the female. What fascinates me about that is that, so you've been able to kind of read about the goddesses and myths through these patriarchal text, you've been through able... Through a patriarchal to, lens, right? Through a patriarchal lens, right. Can you talk about that? What I try to do is deconstruct. <laughs> and so every time there is any negative comment about women, I just add a note in my text. See? See what they're doing here? <laughs> it's the only thing I can do, really. We can try to imagine pre-patriarchal texts. And early on, there was a wonderful book uh, by Charlene Spretnik, Lost Goddesses of Early Greece, that did do a reimagining. It was quite wonderful and allowed women to think, well, you know, what about this? So to find out about 
the goddesses, the Neolithic goddesses, uh, how do you find that information? So it's through the patriarchal text. Is it also through oral tradition or...? Yes, you do. You absolutely find oral tradition in Romanian, Latvian, and Lithuanian songs. You find this old, old, old um, mythological material that probably goes back to the very early Neolithic. And as proof of that, there's some material that probably relates directly to a flooding of the Black Sea around 6600 BCE. And you find that later in songs. So oral tradition has a way of staying alive for millennia. For example, the Rig Vedic texts were oral for generations and generations. The Indo-Europeans really favored the storyteller, always a male, the storyteller, and the ability to memorize. And so for many generations, they would not write down the text because they wanted them to be perfectly memorized, to be passed down. And around the 6th or 5th century BCE, an Indic man whose name was Panini wrote a grammar, not just a grammar of Sanskrit, but rules for writing that would make it possible to to write perfect stanzas. And he was probably the first grammarian that we know of, but he did a wonderful job because we really can see how they could have accomplished that because I can't memorize that much. (laughs) To be honest, I have good dictionaries and grammar books (laughs) and I can't possibly keep everything in my head. How did they do it? I found it interesting when you're talking about all these different goddess cultures that are so different, full of these complex characters and relationships, like the Indian from the Irish, from the Germanic. Can you talk a little bit about the Indian, for example, the Indian goddesses? I have a lot of favorites. When I was writing my dissertation, which took me three and a half years, every single morning at, at, I had this desk that was assigned to me. And every morning I would do a mantra to Saraswati because she's the goddess of learning and letters and, and knowledge. And she's gorgeous. And just ask her to help me. And I have to say, I don't think I wrote very good papers before my dissertation. And my dissertation was something that I really liked. And I had absolute joy every single day in writing it. And I think that it was this underpinning of spirituality. So I love Saraswati. I love Lakshmi because she's, well, of course, she helps you financially, but also she's beauty and love and so many wonderful things. And she was also created at the churning of the sea of milk. And the churning was done by the gods at working with the demons. They churned it back and forth. And she was then born out of a lotus. So just think of the cooperation that would have taken to, to birth this wonderful goddess. I thought it was interesting, the Irish and the Welsh goddesses, and that women in Ireland was perhaps more economically independent. than Yes, not in Wales, not the Welsh, but the Irish. The Irish, Um, okay. I worked with a legal text that stated how females and males inherited. So some of the characters, some of the heroines are, even though they've been sort of vilified by the monks who wrote down these, because they're medieval texts that were first written down, Old Irish. There's a couple characters in the time that I think are really important. And one of them is the young hero, Kukulin, who is the absolute best warrior they have. And he was fostered by his mother's brother, This is the avunculate, where you're not fostered by your father, you're fostered by your maternal uncle. And this probably was common throughout Europe, the mother being more associated with her brother than with her husband. At any rate, he would go into rages and he'd have to be calmed down in some way. And one way to calm him down was they sent out a bevy of of women all lifting their skirts, and he just shrank down. I mean, he shrank. <laughs> so that ter- maybe one woman was fine. A whole uh, a whole whole lot of women was terrifying to him. 
so then there's Nape, who's um they make her out to be stupid and lustful and losing the battle in the end. But that's what they have to do. These were texts written down by Christian men. They would not have liked an aggressive queen. And Maeve could do just about anything, including telling her husband what to do, because she said in their pillow talk, instead of having romance, they talked about the goods each of them had and added them all up. And I think Maeve had one cow more than her husband, so she was dominant. (laughs) And they gave that as the reason for her dominance. So these Christian monks came in and reinterpreted... (laughs) <laughs> the local myths to I think so. Yeah, reintegrate. Yeah. yeah, exactly. What's fascinating to me now is that finally there's a Bridget's Day in Ireland again, and they're honoring Bridget was such an important goddess in, in Ireland. And, you know, they can say, oh, really, we're just honoring St. Bridget, but really doesn't matter. What what does she stand for, Bridget? Bridget's Day is in bulk. The first day of spring, around February 2nd, which is also the date that Maria passed away. So she was going, I think, into a higher self there, the springtime. And it's when in Ireland, the animals would give birth. And so you see the first flowers poking out. It's still winter, but it's sort of going into spring. So she's the goddess of that, but she's also the goddess of crafts. She's the goddess of many things. She's inspiration. I love that rather than our current religions that is one male sky god, these goddesses had their own various domains, which I just love. Yes, but they were also multifunctional. So they had usually a lot of of domains. I'm curious, of course, about the Scandinavian myths, if you have any favorites. Freya. Of course. And she's so interesting, you know, she can't be part of the Aesir, right? She, the, the old, the ruling gods, that's sort of like Olympian. And so there's always the sense that, yeah, she's love, but she's magic and she can be a witch. And, you know, you sort of have to worry about her. I have two wonderful slides of her. One, this is medieval on, in church windows. And one, she's riding a broom. <laughs> and in, in the other, she's riding a feline. And so, you know, all the, the witchy paraphernalia. I really like all the other female figures. I just think that Freya is so multifunctional and so important. What you say about witches, you were talking earlier about goddesses that were demoted and de- degraded. And can you talk a little bit about that, about the connection with witches and Freya was not degraded until way, way after the old Icelandic epics. She was degraded in the medieval era when this was very Christian. And so any deity like Diana, the Roman Diana, then became a witch, whereas she was very much honored by the Romans. So there's a, there's a further degradation as Christianity comes in. But even in, in Greek myth, the Irines, who were um, the Furies in Roman myth, their function is to haunt people who have committed murder, especially of close relatives. So they haunt Orestes when he kills his mother. His mother had killed his father, so he feels that she should be killed. And then they haunt him. But in the third play of Aeschylus's trilogy, the Eumenides, both Apollo and Athena vote that Orestes' murder isn't as bad as Clytemnestra's murder because the mother isn't really anything. She's just the, the field that holds the seed. It's really the father who is the progenitor. And so they turn the Furies into Eumenides, which means kindly-minded ones. And then Orestes gets purified and lives happily ever after, because all he did was kill his mother. This is a defining moment in what you can read in patriarchy. And Athena says, I'm fully on the male side. So there you have it, like in writing, Yes, you have it in writing. The the triumph of the patriarchy, as you say. Exactly, exactly. 
it's kind of amazing, you know, that it's that explicit. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Written into a play. Yes. Yeah. You talked about earlier about Sappho and the fact that Lesbos was not patriarchalized (laughs) till a little bit later. Yeah, most of the Greek islands weren't patriarchalized until quite a bit later. Their cultures seem to have lived on. And you look at Crete and the Minoan culture, which lasted until the Mycenaeans came in in the middle of the second millennium. It's what made me decide to add Greek to my Latin major as an undergraduate because I wanted to read Sappho in the original. Um, She wrote just these beautiful, beautiful hymns, mostly love hymns. A lot of them were for weddings. She had a school for girls. She writes very explicitly of her love for some girls and jealousy of the people they're with. And so she was probably either bisexual or lesbian. And so that is why the term for the island became the term for homosexual women. And it's just gorgeous, gorgeous poetry. I'm reading about the Minoan culture now, and it's really extraordinary to kind of try to imagine what this egalitarian or maybe maybe matriarchal culture that was, you know, an extremely advanced civilization. Very much so. Yeah, we can't translate the um, Minoan text. We certainly can translate the Mycenaean ones. But the Minoan ones, people have tried. And a friend of mine many years ago did her doctoral dissertation running everything they could find from Linear A, which is Minoan, into a computer. And there just wasn't enough text to be able to do it. So I don't know if they ever will. Now, I wanted to make one point, and that is that every matriarchal culture we've ever found, and probably everyone that's existed is equalitarian, the etymology of matriarchy has been given a facelift in the last 20 years. It used to be woman rule, but arche can also mean at the beginning, or like mother at the beginning, which sort of means mother at the center. And it's really, it's not that it's the mother who rules everything, it's that her values rule everything. And this can be found, for example, with the current Menengkabau in Indonesia. There are several matriarchal cultures, and they call themselves a matriarchy. There are several matriarchal cultures in the world, not as many perhaps as there were. And I think it's so important to like stress what you talked about earlier about, you know, the difference between power over and power within. Again, it's Rianne Eisler who really pointed this out and made people aware that there are two really different kinds of power. And power over, of course, is manifested in patriarchy. Yeah. And I think power within is manifested in what we call matriarchal. Exactly. I do, too. Yeah. Yeah. And it's why I also prefer spirituality to religion, because again, we are taking the strength from our own beliefs and validating our own beliefs. Whatever they are, it doesn't matter. They should be our own. I don't like just taking a male doctor's word for anything, a priest's word, a rabbi's word. I'm a critical person. I want to think it out for myself. Right, and that we have our own connections with absolutely uh, with, with nature or the divine or everything, all of it. I started meditating a few months after I passed my doctoral comps, and I would meditate twice a day. And oh my god, I got so much strength from that that it changed my life for the rest of my life. Talk about empowering! That's wonderful. You have a line in When's the Goddess that says, This power within belongs to those who connect themselves to the life force and who, as nurturers, augment that life force. And I think that's beautiful. Thank you very much. I love that you're quoting me. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think that's so powerful, really. Thank you. Question, when you communicated with Maria Gimbutas, were you fluent enough to understand her Lithuanian? 
Oh, she she spoke nothing but English. She was at UCLA and she'd been in the United States quite a while. She always spoke with an accent, but her English was excellent. But she could also read the Eastern European languages, which was cool. She was able to recommend some works to me by the most wonderful collectors of uh, the dinas, the songs. And I saw these Proto-Indo-European goddesses in the songs. It was just marvelous. The works were in the UCLA Research Library, and I was able to get them and translate them. What was it like to work together with her? Maria was a wonderful person, and I kept visiting her until a couple of weeks before she passed away in 1994. She mentored me. She invited me to my first international conference in Dubrovnik, and she was responsible for my first article being published. And she just did that as a matter of course. It wasn't that she thought that I was special. She did that for so many people. She was very kind. And if you went to her house, you would always be served something. Cake when she was younger and healthier, as time went on and she had a caregiver, it would be soup, nourishing soup. I have one memory of her I'd love to tell because it's probably my favorite. About maybe a year before she passed away, she wasn't doing much, but lying in a bed in her office And she would drift in and out of sleep. And I would go with a friend and I would bring either my dulcimer or my guitar. And I would sing to her because I didn't want her to have to respond. And so one time I was singing and she was sleeping and she woke up and she looked at me and she said, my siren. And then she went back to sleep again. <laughs> and that is my beautiful and most lasting memory of Maria Gugbushas. What a lovely memory. Also, you know, her initials were MG and we called her the mother goddess. <laughs> I love it. Were were you sort of aware of all the, you must have been, like the controversy must have just been intense. The controversy grew greatly after she passed away. Then everybody jumped on the bandwagon. It was cool to be anti-Maria. However, some people are eating crow because her Kurgan theory was correct, <laughs> which, is, which is just really great. Maria had very great ability to interpret, just as she did with her homeland theory or hypothesis. But she would go from one point to another without always telling you the steps in between. So people just decided that she wasn't grounded enough. And she would make assertions. She was definite. And people, a lot of people didn't like her definiteness. <laughs> and she had very definite ideas <laughs> about... None of which had been disproved. That's the interesting thing. There was a whole uh, 1985 issue of the Journal of Indo-European Studies devoted to the homeland question. And these people, most of them were just thinking, oh, the Indo-Europeans were Anatolian and they were farmers. And she said, no, they couldn't have been. And they were great scholars and they were all wrong. What was the main sort of point that drew controversy? Was it the fact that she posited that there had been matriarchally based culture yeah. before? Yeah. yeah, and they made fun of it. And that, that she said... People still don't, not all people believe that the, the Proto-Indo-Europeans were bloody warriors. They just don't like to think that that could have been the case for the ancestors of all the Europeans, but they were. Well, thank you so much for giving me your time today. And oh, welcome. I enjoyed this so much. It's so much fun. Thank you for listening to Subject to Power. You can find the show online at subjecttopower.com or subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts. I'd love to know your thoughts on these conversations, so please drop a note on the website or find us on social media. 
The best way to support the show is to rate and review Subject to Power on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. Subject to Power is written, hosted, and produced by me, El Kamihira. Audio engineering is done by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art by B. Johnson. And music by Beware of Darkness. <laughs> <laughs>